0: I want to read to you words from the burial service of the Anglican Book of Common Prayer from 1559, and I want you to hear the humility of these words and the sobriety of these words. Man that is born of a woman hath but a short time to live, and is full of misery. He cometh up and is cut down like a flower. He flieth, as it were, a shadow, and never continueth in one stay. In the midst of life we are in death. Of whom may we seek for succor but of thee, O Lord, which for our sins justly art displeased. Yet, O Lord God most holy, O Lord most mighty, O holy and most merciful Savior, deliver us not into the bitter pains of eternal death. Thou knowest, Lord, the secrets of our hearts. Shut not up thy merciful eyes to our prayers, but spare us, Lord most holy, O God most mighty, O holy and merciful Savior, thou most worthy judge eternal. Suffer us not at our last hour for any pains of death to fall from thee. In the midst of life, we are in death. And I want to speak to all of us in light of the suffering that God has brought to the Rasmussen family this week. And I want, to, I want to help us to think and feel about this in a humble, godly, compassionate way. And I want to help all of us who are parents to talk to our children about this in ways that will strengthen their faith and point them to God, our Father, who is merciful and kind and mighty and faithful. And I want all of us to broaden this out also to think about other people who are suffering right now in all kinds of ways. In my prayer a moment ago, I mentioned Curtis Cook, who in a matter of, of days has lost his dad and his aunt. Some of you are struggling with the pain of your own sin and the ongoing continuing consequences of your own sin. Some of you are dealing with the fact that you've been sinned against by your father or by your husband, or by someone else in your life in very wicked and terrible ways. Some of you can't find a job. You're depressed and you're you're fearful about that. Some of you are sick or have loved ones who are sick. And what I have to say this morning in many ways applies to all of us in all of these situations. So what does the Bible say in, in a time like this? What's the Bible say to us? What we need in a time like this in any time of suffering and, and sorrow is a firm place to stand. We need, we need to touch bottom and find that there's something solid there to stand on. A rock to stand on. And so I want to give you a place to stand and a place for your children to stand. I want to do that by giving us three truths from Scripture and then a couple of exhortations at the end. Number one. It shouldn't be this way. This is not the way the world was supposed to be. All of the suffering of this life comes because this is a broken world. Death comes because this is a broken and cursed world. And death is an enemy. Thank God it's an enemy that will be finally and utterly destroyed by the life and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. But death is an enemy. Christians should hate death. Not in the sense of dreading it as you look forward to your own death. But we should hate death because it is the result of sin and Satan and it is our enemy. Even when the one who has died is a Christian, even when we know that the one who has died is, is now basking in the eternal pleasures at God's right hand, we should still grieve at the reality of death because death is a result of sin and it wasn't supposed to be this way. Now when I say that death is a result of sin, that does not mean that those who die young are worse sinners than you or me. It means that we live in a world that has been twisted and messed up and broken by the consequences of sin. And it means that even when a little child dies, he has died because our father Adam rebelled against God and in Adam all die. So what should be your response when you hear of the death of a little child? You should weep. Do not use your doctrine to rip out your humanity. Do not let your doctrine make you glib in the face of death. Your doctrine should teach you that death is an enemy that is yet to be crushed. Your doctrine should teach you that this is not the way it should be. Your doctrine should teach you that death is not a natural part of life. That is a lie from people who do not know God and do not fear Him. Death is not a natural part of life. And your doctrine should teach you that death is not something to be embraced it's not something to make peace with. You do not make peace with an enemy like death. You patiently wait for the day when your enemy will be completely crushed. And yes, that day is coming. Scripture says in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-five to 26 For Jesus Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. So, yes, Jesus Christ will abolish death, but that hasn't happened yet. And death is still an enemy. And godliness will let you weep in the face of death. We know this beyond a shadow of a doubt because that is exactly what Jesus did. When Jesus' friend Lazarus died, Jesus was not a Stoic. John 11, 33 to 36 <clears throat> says this. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, Jesus' friend Lazarus had died. Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha. And he is talking to one of his sisters and she's weeping. When Jesus, therefore, saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And so the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. Jesus Christ is not a cold hard stoic God he is not a stoic who's indifferent to your suffering he's not a sadist who enjoys making people suffer when he stands in front of Lazarus tomb he weeps he hates what sin has done to his world he hates the death and pain of this world He hates the sadness of Mary and Martha as they mourn the death of their brother. And he hates the pain that Eric and Helen and their family are suffering right now. He hates it. And he hates the pain that you suffered when your father died, when your mother died. He hates the pain that you suffered when you lost the baby. Or when that man sinned against you, or when your husband left you, or your father left you or when the cancer came, or when your family was destroyed. He hates that. And he is deeply troubled. And he knows the pain that you have suffered because he has suffered it too. He was, Scripture tells us, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knows grief. Do not let your doctrine make you glib or stoic in the face of death. Weep with those who weep. That's what Jesus did. And He wept even when He knew that death is not the end of the story. He wept even when He knew that He was just about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And He wept even when He knew that all of His people would be raised from the dead. Don't let that fact make you A stoic in the face of death. Do not try to be more spiritual than Jesus Christ. If death is an enemy, treat it like one. And so we stand here. You're right to weep. It's not supposed to be this way. Where else can we stand at a time like this? Secondly, God is sovereign. In other words, God is in complete control of all things. God Almighty has supreme power and authority over all things. Ephesians 1.11 says, In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. All things. Romans 8.28 And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. God is in control of all things in this world. And He does everything that He wants to do. There's nothing that God wants to do that He does not do. Job 42.2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 115.3, Our God is in the heavens, He does all that He pleases. Psalm 135.6, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He does whatever He wants to do. And God even controls calamities and disasters, what we think of as accidents. Isaiah 45.6 and 7. God himself declares to us, I am the Lord and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Amos 3.6 says, if a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? God controls all of these things. Even bad things. He controls life and death. Deuteronomy 32, 39. Again, God Himself declares to us, See now that I, I am He, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. God brings death and life when Job had suffered the loss of his property, the loss of his health, and he is reeling from these things. And this is Job chapter 1. Someone has come to him and told him, you've lost all of your property. And while that man was still speaking, Job 1.18 says, while he was still speaking, telling him all this terrible thing that had happened to him, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. He lost all of his sons and all of his daughters. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said... Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. That's right. Job was right. These words of comfort that we think of from Psalm 139. Verses 13 to 16. David says this, For you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. When as yet there was not one of them. God has a book with all of our days written in them. All of our days. Your days are numbered. That's a good thing. Take comfort from that. Elizabeth's days were numbered by God. Life belongs to God. And he gives it and he takes it away according to his infinite power and his great wisdom. And he is in control of all things. He's in control of Amtrak trains. He's in control of cars and railroad crossings. He's in control of all of these things. Now, what do you do with that? Do you understand how destructive you can be with that, with those who are suffering right now? Do you understand... How destructive you can be with all those passages I just read to you. We can be destructive in two ways. If you've embraced the superficial glibness that often comes to evangelicals in the face of suffering. The superficial glibness that says, praise God, she's in heaven now, don't worry about it, it'll be great, someday you'll see her again. The superficial glibness that refuses to weep in the face of suffering. Or if you've embraced the coldness and the fatalism that often come to reformed Christians because of the doctrine, the true doctrine of the sovereignty of God. If you've embraced that coldness and fatalism in the face of suffering, then you can use these passages in very harmful ways with the Rasmussen's and with everyone else who's undergoing a tragedy. God is sovereign. Just trust Him. Get over it. Don't you believe in the sovereignty of God? The Bible says that all things work together for good. What's wrong with you? Why are you crying? What a cruel way to bring comfort to God's suffering children. Christians who are going through deep waters of suffering do need to remember the sovereignty of God, but never as a cold, theoretical, philosophical abstraction that will never help them. Think of it like this. Where should we put the emphasis in that sentence, God is sovereign? Where should we put the emphasis? Should it be on the word sovereign? I don't think so. Even though this is where we often put it. It's easy to turn the sovereignty of God into a debating point or a theoretical, abstract, philosophical argument. And there is a time for getting the facts right about these things. But what do we need right now? What do Eric and Helen and their family need right now? Christians who are going through terrible suffering need to know the God who is sovereign. They need to know Him and what He is like. Because it's cold comfort to hear that God is sovereign if you think that God is mean or harsh or cruel or arbitrary or distant. What use is that kind of God? Even if he is sovereign, but it is sweet comfort to remember that God is sovereign when we remember what God is like and scripture tells us what God is like. Listen to these words. And think of the sovereignty of God in light of these things. Psalm 34, 17 and 18. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them. Out of all their troubles, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 36, 5-9 Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Psalm 72:13. He will have compassion on the poor and needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. Psalm 86, 15, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Psalm 103, 8 to 14, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For He, rem- he Himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Or Psalm 145:17, The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His deeds. Everything He does as right and kind. Lamentations 3, 21-25. Jeremiah says, This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for them, to the person who seeks Him. Lamentations 3, 31 and 32. The Lord will not reject forever, for if He causes grief, then He will have compassion according to His abundant loving kindness. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's the kind of God we have. Our God is the God of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell on the house of the Lord forever. That God is sovereign. That God is in control of all things. That God is in control of calamities and disasters. That God has the power of life and death in His hand. In the middle of tragedy and suffering, don't talk to people about the sovereignty of God. Instead, talk to them about the God who is sovereign. Talk to them about the loving, merciful, compassionate, faithful, gracious... kind shepherd, sympathetic Savior, who is also wise and powerful beyond all imagination. That is what suffering people can hope in and find comfort in. Not in a cold, distant, abstract doctrine, but in a father who loves his children and in a Savior who will not break a bruised reed Or snuff out a dimly burning wick. Third, it won't always be this way. Stand on the rock of it wasn't supposed to be this way. Stand on the rock of a God who is good and kind and merciful and sovereign. Stand on the rock. It won't always be this way. There is coming a day when the enemy death will be abolished. Again, 1 Corinthians 15. For Jesus Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Revelation 21, 1 to 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. There is coming a day when the curse of death will be done. There's coming a day when all things will be made new. Wait for that day. Hope in that day. Find strength now as you look forward to that day. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is your place to stand. This is not the way it's supposed to be. God is kind and good and wise and merciful and completely in control. And it will not always be this way. Stand there. Help Eric and Helen and their children to stand there. Pray that God would help them to stand there. You stand there. Help your children to stand there. There's still more to be said in a time like this. It would be very easy for us to let this pass. And in some ways, let it be wasted on us and lost on us. And we can't do that. So I want to remind you, and you need to remind yourself and your children, you too will die. In Adam, all die. It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. James says in James 413 to 15, Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. And yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Our life constantly hangs by a thread. The smallest thing, think of how frail you are. The smallest little microscopic virus can kill you tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. We must use events like this to remind ourselves of the frailty of life and the certainty of death. And in times like this, we must help our children to think of their own frailty and the certainty that they will die someday. It might be 70 years from now. It might be tomorrow. Our life is a vapor that is here and has quickly gone away. The pastor, Jonathan Edwards, who lived in the late 1700s, had several children. And one of his children, when he was nine years old, now just think of this, parents, think of how, how fearful we are. When Jonathan Edwards' son was nine years old, he sent him on a trip with another man, into the wilderness of Massachusetts to think of it as a missions trip for months. It might have been even a year. Sent his nine-year-old son with another man through the wilderness of Massachusetts to preach to Indians. And while his son was on that trip, his nine-year-old son, a friend, a little child died. And I want to read to you from a letter that Jonathan Edwards wrote to his son upon the death of this friend he says the week before last on thursday david died whom you knew and used to play with and who used to live at our house his soul is gone into the eternal world this is a loud call of god to you to prepare for death this is what his son says to his 9 year old son you see that they are young That they that are young die, as well as those that are old. David was not very much older than you. Remember what Christ said, that you must be born again or you never can see the kingdom of God. Never give yourself any rest unless you have good evidence that you are converted and become a new creature. We hope that God will preserve your life and health and return you to Stockbridge again in safety. But always remember that life is uncertain. You know not how soon you must die, and therefore had need to be always ready. Speak to your children about their need to be ready to die. Jonathan Edwards was a good father. He's a good father. Now we can hear that and think about that and talk to our children about that out of fear or out of faith we need to think about it and speak to our children about that out of faith our children are gods pastor Bailey's dad lost three sons and what he used to say according to Tim is that our children are on loan from God and he can call them whenever he sees fit that's faith we can think about that with faith because you can have the certain hope of eternal life your children can have the certain hope of eternal life you can have the certain hope of eternal life in John 11, 25 and 26, John 11, Jesus is talking to Mary and Martha who just lost, lost their brother Lazarus. He's weeping before their tomb, but he says this. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Have you put all of your hope in Him as your Savior and your King? There is coming a day when you, your life will be over and you will stand before Him. Children, there's coming a day. Do you believe Him? Let's pray.